All right, folks. You can head back to your seat if you don't mind. If you need coffee to live, you can stay in line. That's okay. Everybody else, if you kind of make your way back. I love that. I love that you guys want to speak to each other and see one another. I think that's missing in a lot of churches, so... Good for you guys. Good to see you. Uh, I was out last week, so I want to say a special thank you to Tracy Simmons, who is uh, the lead pastor at Christ Community Church over on kind of the southwest side of town, over on 100th Avenue. Uh, Tracy's guest preached for us before. You guys may remember at Church in the Park last summer that Christ Community Church joined us one Sunday. We actually got rained out, so we had to all cram into that little theater at the Lusack Library. You might remember that. And uh, Tracy's just been a really good friend to me. Um, I'll tell you guys a story next week when we talk about how to pray for one another, where God gave me an opportunity to be with Tracy in a really challenging and special time in his life, uh, and God's used that. That was about a year and a half ago. He's used that to really bind us to each other. We have lunch regularly. We pray for each other, and I appreciated him being willing to leave his own congregation uh, and have another staff pastor preach there and come and instruct us on unanswered prayer. So if you haven't had a chance to hear his message from last week, uh, I thought he did a really, really good job. I very much appreciated him being willing to navigate uh, a tough topic. I think he told you guys that I gave him a lot of options to pick from, and he picked the hardest one, so I can't feel too bad for him about that, um, but he did a really, really good job, so I'd encourage you to go back and, and see that. Uh, this is the third week in our series on prayer as a spiritual practice, and not just prayer uh, for the sake of maybe convincing God that he owes us a favor or uh, even just as a comfort in our lives, but as a model for how to walk in the way of Jesus, because that's the point. If prayer is about something else, then it's really a waste of our time. But if it's an exercise in us following Jesus and living the same way that he lived, uh, then, then it's going to be very fruitful in our lives. And I hope today to get a little bit more practical with you. Um, two weeks ago, we spent the majority of our time trying to kind of agree together. I hope that you agreed with the points I made that Sunday about what prayer is not. Uh, I gave you a whole list of, I think, six or seven things that, that prayer is kind of commonly misconstrued as in the church. And we said prayer can't be any of those things, even though people seem to think that that's the case. And then we also laid out a list of things that prayer must include, things like humility and honesty, being direct with God, being blunt with him at times, because that's the way he speaks with us as well. Um, and so if you haven't had a chance to navigate that, again, I'm not here to plug my own preaching, but this is a series that kind of builds on itself, and so you might benefit from going back and finding that sermon as well. Um, one note for you is that I had originally planned for us to look at prayer for about five weeks. That's the amount of time that we spent on our first spiritual practice, which was silence and solitude, back in October of 2022. And I just kind of assumed that prayer would fit in a similar mold, didn't know for sure. Uh, three weeks into this thing, I have no idea how long this is going to take us. I just want you guys to know that. So I thought maybe beginning of March, we would be back in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. I'm glad when we started Mark that I warned you that it could take us a few years, because I think that's probably going to be the case. Um, but here's what I know. I know that we'll spend as much time on prayer, uh, working through what prayer is and is not, uh, we'll spend as much time as we need to, and I think we'll know when it's time for us to move on. We'll go at least three more weeks. Today's the first of three where we'll be really practical. I'm going to try to give you some uh, specific models of prayer that come from the scriptures and that may help you when you don't know how to pray or if you're not a person who's ever really prayed before. Um, we're going to do that again next week and the last week of January, but we're just going to kind of let this thing lead us. We're going to try. I think prayer is so foundational. It's such a bedrock part of Christian living, and yet it's almost always... Um, in my experience anyway, in the lives of people, it becomes a, a burden and a duty. 
instead of a joy and an opportunity and something that's life-giving. That's what we want it to be. And so we're going to take our time. We're going to try to reach the point where our prayer lives, where we at least understand that the way that prayer is talked about in the Bible is realistic. It's not made up. It's not meant to bully us or shame us, but it's an opportunity, a door that's open. So to that end, here's my request for you. Um, I would really like to hear from any of you guys who have questions about prayer. Uh, or concerns. If I make a point in this series, I'm going to probably introduce some things to you even today that you may not have heard before. Um, Everything, again, is going to be coming from the scriptures, but unfortunately, prayer is oftentimes oversimplified and very shallow in the way that we present it. And so if you have a concern or a comment or a question, I would love for you to email me directly and let me know. Uh, We're going to continue doing midweek teaching through this series where every Wednesday or Thursday morning, another video will come up on our website where I'll be a little bit more practical with you guys and give you some tips and tools if you want to navigate prayer. Uh, But I'd like to address things that maybe are not obvious to you. And and I I won't call you out. I'm not going to like say, so-and-so emailed me this, and can you guys believe how bad of a prayer they are, and let's fix this problem for them. No, I will not do anything like that. But I will bring up some issues, and I'll do a better job if you guys will feed me back. So if you want to do that, you can do it even this morning as I'm going through this message. Uh, Take a note, shoot it at my email, and I'll be sure and get back to you guys and include that. Before we jump into the practical instruction, I want to make one call back to week one, where I defined prayer for you. And I told you that week that prayer is really hard to define in a simple way. I probably overthought this process, and here's what I landed on. So if you don't know what we're talking about when we use the word prayer, here's what we mean. We mean communication between the eternal human spirit and the eternal living God. Now, when I say eternal human spirit, I don't mean some sort of collective energy that all people share. I mean the unique individual part of you that's eternal. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you haven't been around church for a long time or you've lived in a consumer culture so long that you really only think about what's at the end of your nose and between now and when you go to bed at night. But the Bible seems to think and Jesus seems to believe that you are eternal, that there's something about you, not just your body, not just your mind, but a spiritual part of you uh, that will persist into eternity and that God will maintain that part of you and that you will take certain parts of your experience on earth with you into eternity. And so prayer is essentially us, um, I want to explain this in a way that's clear, It's us engaging with God as we will in eternity, but we get to do it now. And we do it with our bodies, and we do it with our minds, and we do it with our spirit, but there's a part of us that goes on forever, and that part can make meaningful contact with God now. And so that's what we mean when we say prayer. We don't just mean reciting pre-written prayers. We don't mean necessarily uh, liturgical prayers in a high church setting, though that may have been your experience in a Catholic or an Anglican church in the past. Those are not bad things, but we want something deeper than that and more broad than that. Something that those kinds of things, liturgical prayers, fit into a broader and deeper category. So that's what we mean when we say prayer. When I use prayer today, that's what I'm talking about. It's the only thing I'm talking about, is finding a way for your spirit to communicate with the eternal living God. Prayer probably is a small part of everybody's Christian life. At the very least, it's something that you engage in when you come to a church service. Whether you want to or not, you get prayed over. Uh, Maybe you have a very spiritual grandparent or parent in your life who prays for you and insists on reminding you of that every time you talk, even though maybe that's not your favorite thing. But prayer probably has found its way into your life in one way or another. What is uncommon, however, for most of us, whether we claim Christ or not, it's uncommon to find a person for whom prayer has taken on the characteristics of a practice. There's not a lot of us who plan prayer. There's not a lot of us who prepare well for prayer or who are diligent in our time of communicating with God's Spirit. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the newly founded church in the city of Corinth, he wrote about the way that professional athletes train their bodies. And he used that as an analogy for the way that apprentices of Jesus, Christians, are meant to, are intended to train our spirits in the way of Jesus. Paul asks this question in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. We'll have this for you on the screen. He says, Do you not know that all the runners in a stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? 
So then, run to win. That's his first command. Now he explains what he means in verse 25. He says, each competitor must exercise self-control in everything. And you know this, right? We live in Anchorage, a place where people run up and down the mountains, a thing I'll never understand. You come back to where you started. I don't know why you were in such a hurry to get there and back. But people love to kayak here. They love to swim. They love to hike and climb and cycle. So we understand training. Probably most of you either have engaged in that at some point on your own, or you know somebody who has, who has a regimented bedtime, who eats a certain way, who exercises and trains for the sake of a specific kind of performance. Paul says, these people do this to receive a perishable crown. Your blue ribbons and your trophies are not going with you into eternity. However, Paul says, we train in order to receive an imperishable crown. Something eternal is what Paul says is on the line for you and I. Verse 26, he says, so then, I, speaking of himself, I do not run uncertainly, I do not box like one who hits only air. Instead, I subdue my body and I make it to be my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, a side note here for you. This verse, verse 27, is the remedy for the whole celebrity pastor abusing their flock thing. If if people who preach God's word would take seriously the disciplines of God, that problem would solve itself. But unfortunately, that's not the case. The point that I wanna make to you today is that the Apostle Paul seems to think that there's a similar parallel way to pursue Jesus that is in some ways similar to the way that an athlete trains themselves in order to perform at a very high level physically. Paul uses the phrase, I subdue my body and I make it my slave. What Paul's communicating to you and I is that he has learned how to harness the physical part of his life in order to train his whole self to follow Jesus. And this is not a sermon today about keeping a schedule or eating the right way or disciplining your sleep instead of falling asleep, scrolling your phone, or any other kind of physical wisdom. Okay, maybe we'll have a chance to navigate those things down the road as sort of a holistic way to follow Jesus. This is a sermon about prayer. So what does this have to do with prayer? What does the idea of disciplining your body have to do with the way that you communicate with God? Especially if I just finished telling you that the part of you that communicates with God is essentially spiritual, and so is God himself. Why is the analogy of exercise necessary? Paul understands that you and I can only be disciples where we are, in the bodies that we have, at the time and the place that we actually live. What that means is, if any spiritual practice, including prayer, is just theoretical, If we understand lots of things about it and we never participate, it's useless to us. The church is not study hall. This is not about you memorizing lectures from people who have insights that you've never heard before. If what you hear at church, if what you engage with in your small group is not actually affecting the regular 24 hours of your normal day, it's useless to you. It's no better than you just having YouTube videos on in the background about cooking or race cars or space or whatever other hobby thing you're interested in. If you want to actually follow Jesus, there's gonna have to be movement. And if you want to move, you'll have to learn how. And if you wanna learn how, you're gonna have to go to God's word. And you're gonna have to take people like Paul very seriously. The way that we follow has to make Jesus, excuse me, the way we follow Jesus has to make a discernible difference in how we live out our ordinary lives. To play around with prayer would be, to quote the apostle, to box like one who hits only air. Maybe that sounds cool to you, but that's supposed to be insulting. That idea is supposed to jar you a little bit and make you go, am I just air bo- shadow boxing when I'm praying or do I actually have a meaningful intent to connect with God and do I believe that if I do that, if I connect with God, that something may actually happen in my life? Your prayer life can do that. It can shadow box or it can make real meaningful contact with the spiritual realm. For example, you can close your eyes and say a bunch of stuff that you don't really mean in order to make yourself or your kids feel better or you can make meaningful contact with the eternal living God out of the eternal part of you 
that's gonna outlive your body and your mind in eternity. We all desperately need that in our lives. That would be probably the most transformative thing you could ever experience, to feel that you could make meaningful contact with God on a daily basis. How we pray, how often we pray, even the tools that help us to do so, these things are gonna vary from person to person. The purpose of prayer is to commune with God as close to constantly as possible. Um, In his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro talks a lot about grace. Uh, The book is designed to introduce you to the idea that you may not be uh, everything you think you are. You may have some problems and help you kind of source where those problems come from and then deal with them as a Christian. Uh, And over and over again, Pete reemphasizes grace and mercy. Here's what he says to those who are on the way of Jesus. He says, we are constantly tempted to think that God will love us more if we pray more. And that's not what I'm trying to say to you today, church. Pete goes on to say, remember grace. Grace which reminds us that there is nothing we can do or not do that would cause God to love us any more than he does right now. So as today we focus on some tools, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to do. I'm not here to make you feel worse than you already do about your prayer life or lack thereof. I'm not interested in you feeling guilty. I don't want you to feel shame. This is not a new prerequisite to membership at this church. There's not gonna be anybody at the door checking your prayer punch card to make sure that you're holy enough to come in next week. Nothing like that, okay? Even in your life groups this week, where I'm gonna encourage you guys to spend some time talking about how to engage with a practice called fixed hour prayer together, collectively, and let that be a unifying practice for you. If you can't engage with that, or you choose not to, or you meant to and it just doesn't happen, nobody's gonna be waiting to hit you over the head with something because you failed. We have to remember grace. We've been given access to God. Now the choice that remains before us is do we take advantage of that or do we not? God isn't going anywhere. His love isn't up for sale. It's not available for you to be bad enough that he rejects you or or, or pulls the offer back because you made him really mad. He'll stay where he is. We get to decide whether we go with him or whether we kind of begrudgingly dig our heels in and make him drag us through life, which he loves us and oftentimes he'll do. So there are two very accessible tools that I want to share with you today. One of these tools is a long-form prayer practice. Let me say that to you again. The first tool is a long-form prayer practice, and I'm going to tell you what that is in just a minute. The second tool that we're going to talk about is a short-form prayer practice. So one of the practices I'm going to lay before you today, do my best to explain and encourage you to participate in, it's going to be rhythmic, it's going to be something you can do daily, you're going to have to plan around it, it's going to involve your schedule, and it's going to be a bit of an investment for you to make, but I think it's important for you to at least think about it. The other is more so a tool that's going to be close at hand when and where you don't know how to pray, what to pray, especially when you feel yourself beginning to physically tense up with anxiety, fear, anger, rage, those kinds of things. So we're going to go long form first, then we're going to go short form, and then we're going to land the plane this morning. The long form version of prayer that I want to talk to you about today is called fixed hour prayer. Fixed hour prayer is also sometimes called the daily office. Uh, You may have heard it called the liturgy of the hours if you come from a Catholic background or the divine offices if you come from an Eastern Orthodox church standpoint. Fixed hour prayer is an answer to the following complaints that you may or may not have. Maybe at times you've thought to yourself, I can't find time to pray regularly and you don't know what to do about that. Or you think, man, I only really pray in the morning and the evening and I feel close to God at breakfast and I feel close to him when I lay my head down, but I'm an animal the other nine hours of the day. I feel that God is far from me, I'm far from him, and I don't really exemplify Christ-likeness. Maybe at times you feel that your real life is cut off from your faith. You don't know how to begin to integrate and incorporate what happens on a Sunday morning into the other six days of the week. Or you may find as you analyze and get to know your prayer life that all you ever do is ask God for things. And maybe you've started to find out that there's more to prayer than that for you. I hope that's the case. 
Fixed hour prayer is a daily rhythm of prayer that forces us to stop what we're doing, to acknowledge God, to trust him with our responsibilities, to follow him inward as he deals with our inner life, and then to reframe our perspective in proportion to the ministry of his presence in us and in our lives. So in other words, we hit pause on what we're doing, we spend time with him, we allow him to sort of navigate and get to know what's going on inside of us and deal with those things, and then with that kind of sense of peace and perspective, we reapproach the world, and oftentimes we find that though our problems have not solved themselves in the 15 minutes that we've spent in prayer, we are much better equipped to navigate what's going on. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but life has taught me that more often than not, I am the biggest issue in any circumstance I'm a part of. Things go wrong, and then I get worse, and then I make them worse. And so this is a practice that will help you reconnect to God in a way that should remind you of who he is and what he's doing. As a spiritual practice, fixed hour prayer is actually older than Christianity is. Uh, it comes to us from the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish song book that we refer to as the Psalms, the songwriter writes in Psalm 119, he says, "'Rulers pursue me for no reason.'" Yet I am more afraid of disobeying your instructions. The songwriter is singing to God. He says, I rejoice in your instructions like one who finds much plunder. I hate and I despise deceit. I love your law. Now catch this in verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you because of your just regulations. Those who love your law are completely secure. Nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your deliverance, O Lord, and I obey your commands. I keep your rules. I love them greatly. I keep your precepts and rules for you are aware of everything I do. Seven times a day is an example of fixed hour prayer. There is a sense of the psalm writer having planned his day out in such a way that at seven specific times he stops and returns his attention to God. It doesn't mean that this is seven hours of prayer. Don't misunderstand, though the name is fixed hour prayer, all that means is fixed points of time. Uh, maybe there were bells that rang in the city, and he just sort of synced up his prayer life with what was already going on. Probably some of these were connected to mealtimes. Maybe one was at dawn, one was at dusk, one was when he went to bed. But he found a way to break his day up and to return his attention to God again and again and again. Decades later, after the psalmist wrote that verse, the prophet Daniel of Lion's Den fame, you've probably heard that story, he practiced three fixed hours of prayer a day. It's actually what got him thrown into the Lion's Den in the first place. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that when Daniel realized that a written decree had been issued, meaning the law had been made that would eventually send him to prison, he entered into his home where the windows in his upper room opened toward Jerusalem, which is the city he had been deported from. He'd been captured as a young man, moved to the city of Babylon, forced to integrate himself into Babylonian life, but every day he got up and he prayed and he reminded himself that God was still on his throne and he would still do his will in the world. Three times daily, Daniel was kneeling and offering prayers and thanks to his God just as he had been accustomed to doing previously before he was ever deported from his home city. Even in the face of national law that forbade Daniel from praying to God the Father, his practice of prayer was central to his ability to live life with God. Even later in the Bible, in the New Testament, after Jesus founded the, book, uh, the, the church in Acts, excuse me, uh, his apprentices practiced prayer at daily fixed points. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 tell us that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time for prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They have a specific time every day where they go to the temple and they pray to God. And a man lame from birth was being carried up who was placed at the temple gate called the beautiful gate every day so that he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. So there's a sense of rhythm to this. 
There's a sense of planning ahead and of making this a priority such that it becomes an interruption to all the other things that oftentimes we think are our true priorities. Fixed hour prayer was first arranged into a practice that was meant to be passed down to new believers by the Catholic Saint Benedict, and he did this between AD 400 and AD 500. His system was known as the rule of St. Benedict, and it included another hundred rules that monks were supposed to follow, but the fixed office, excuse me, fixed hour prayer practice involved eight offices or fixed times of prayer during the day and all night long. Roughly, the rule of St. Benedict calls for prayer at 2 a.m., again at dawn, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., dusk, and 7 p.m., because if you gotta get up to pray at two, you go to bed at seven. That's how that works, okay? In the 1,500 years between St. Benedict and us, people have experimented with and written about every form of fixed-hour prayer that you can possibly imagine. The most helpful reading that I have personally done on fixed-hour prayer is from chapter 6 of Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, in which he lays out two practices. One is fixed-hour prayer, what he calls the daily office, and the other is Sabbath. We'll get to Sabbath later, probably sometime next year, as its own practice. Now, I can't communicate every good thing that Pete has to say about fixed-hour prayer in his book, but I do want to encourage you to borrow his structure for fixed-hour prayer, especially if you've never prayed like this before. So, Pete Scazzaro, Scazzaro excuse me, recommends that you include the following four elements in your practice of fixed hour prayer. This is regardless of whether you pray once in the morning or you pray morning, lunch, and evening or you decide to add four times in. The number is up to you. You need to access the grace that God's given you and find a way forward that works for your life, for your schedule, for your family. Regardless of how many times you do this, one, two, or 10 times a day, these four pieces of the puzzle are very important. The first is stopping, stopping. Even if you only pause to pray at one planned point each day, the attitude that you bring to that time of prayer will make a much larger difference than any other factor. The state of your inner being, how you are feeling, what you are carrying, what you have gone through that day, the nightmare that you had the night before, the anxiety you have about the meeting coming up or whether you're gonna have enough money to pay the bills or the new crisis that's emerged in the life of your child. Whatever it is that's eating away at you, you bring that with you into prayer and if you don't take a second and acknowledge those things, they will run and eventually ruin your prayer life. You need a little bit of space. This is why planning this is a really good idea because you're probably never gonna accidentally stumble into a moment of introspection. No matter how introverted you are, you're gonna stumble into social media, you're gonna stumble into email, you're gonna stumble into dinner, and then you're gonna stumble into bed. That's gonna be your day. You need to plan this. You need to structure it. You need to be disciplined. It will pay off, I promise you. If you are in a hurry, or if you feel like prayer is just a duty for you to fulfill, or if you're maybe hoping to appease a God that you're scared to death of but you don't actually have a loving relationship with, then your fixed hour prayer will bear very little fruit. If instead you become willing to slow yourself all the way down to a standstill pace inside yourself, then you have a very good chance of actually praying. Because remember what prayer is. It's not just empty words. It's communicating between your eternal spirit and the spirit of the living God. Number two is centering. So you've stopped yourself. You've simply pulled the emergency brake and you're dealing with all the chaos of how that feels. Now you have to deal with you. Okay, you got to the moment, you stopped it all, you broke up your rhythm, now you have to center yourself. Centering is where you actively still yourself in God's presence. If fixed hour prayer involves work at any step, this is the step where the work will happen. It will 
involve you sensing where you are frantic, sensing where you are upset, where you are afraid or anxious or worried, and as you feel the knots in your stomach, or as you realize you've been pressing your tongue against the roof of your mouth all day, or you've been holding your breath for minutes at a time because of the anxiety that you're carrying with you, you give yourself room to physically relax that tension. Just let it go. It does not serve God for you to be worried and anxious. Now, that's not to say that if you are worried and anxious, God doesn't love you or you're outside of his will, but it's not your responsibility, even if it was your responsibility in your family of origin to carry the burdens of your family and anxiety, that is not your responsibility in God's family. He does not need you to be the grown-up in the house that carries everybody's worries and makes sure that everything makes sense, okay? So give yourself room when you're with him to let him be who he says he is, a father to you, a good father, maybe unlike any father you've ever known, and let that tension out. Let it go. Release it. We still ourselves, as David commands us to do in Psalm 37, when he says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not get upset because of one who is successful in his way. How, how 2023 does that sound, right? You're scrolling Instagram and you're going, gosh, I wish I went on nine vacations a year. David says, don't get upset because of somebody else who has great success or because of the person who carries out wicked schemes, right? That's the news cycle that we live in. It's always bad and getting worse. David gets it. He's like, this is what's gonna bombard you. Still yourself. Cease from anger. Abandon wrath. Do not get upset because it leads only to evil doing. Again, in Psalm 46, God the Father is speaking and he says, stop striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. I'm bigger than you, is what God's saying, in the nicest possible way. I'm stronger than you. Everything's gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay, but you've got to still yourself. You've got to get near to me because if you're far from me and you're trying to solve all these problems without me, you're just going to make more, more trouble. More trouble for you, more trouble for the people around you. A small practice that I like to use as a part of fixed hour prayer is what Richard Foster refers to as centering down. So I know that's a little confusing because I just told you you need to center and now I'm telling you there's this other thing and it's called centering down. But they go together, so just follow me if you can here. I told you about this the first week that we did uh, Silence and Solitude. I like to start my prayer time with my palms physically down. Uh, this is me, usually my fists are closed. This is me saying to God, I am carrying things right now. Uh, there are burdens on my shoulders. There are things on my heart. There are stuff on my mind that I'm not able to just immediately let go of. And so I calmly and slowly say everything to God that's bugging me. The things I'm worried about, the stuff I'm afraid of, the things I'm, I'm just really nervous are not gonna work out the way that they should. Even the stuff I've done wrong. It's a great opportunity for confession. And as I say to God, these are the things that are bugging me, I'm letting go of them. This is where my stress is coming from, God, and I'm giving it to you. I'm releasing it. I'm gonna put down the heavy suitcases full of the boulders of my concerns for just a few minutes, and then I turn my hands up, and I say to God, I'm gonna receive from you what you've promised to me, peace. I'm gonna remember that I'm loved by you even if I don't love myself right now. I'm gonna be okay and accept that who I am is, is enough for you because of the grace and mercy that you've given me through Jesus Christ. God, I believe that you're a loving God. I believe that you're present in my life. I believe that you want what's good and right for me. And I'll repeat that as much as I have to. Oftentimes, as I say those nice things about God, I feel my heart kicking and screaming and going, uh-uh, that's not what life looks like. Life doesn't look like there's a good God on the throne. Life doesn't feel like God is loving and on my side. And so I'm gonna give those things to God and then I'm gonna say back to him, okay, I'm gonna try again to receive from you what you've given to me. But I take a minute in my fixed hour prayer practice to just calm down a little bit, to reconnect with who I really am in Christ and who God says that he is. The third factor in fixed hour prayer, according to Pete Scazzaro's model, is silence. I spoke at length with you in October about silence and solitude, so I'm not gonna go into a lot of depth about it today, but I'll just say this, silence with God is what we need in order to remedy or fix the chaos in our lives, especially those of us who live mostly online. And when I say that, what I mean is people who have a cell phone within arm's reach, 
the majority of the waking hours of the day. People like us who live that way need some quiet, even if we're scared to death of it. Henry Nouwen wrote uh, that without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. We need quiet with God in order to work against the chaos of humanity that we are immersed in, especially if you have young kids. You need a little bit of distance from people, just a minute or two at a time. Silence allows our inner monologue to come to the surface so we can deal with it. We can figure out what really is rattling around inside our heads, good, bad, or ugly. Solitude gives us the chance for the after image of human contact to fade away. So just like when we look into a bright light and we look away and there's that floating light, people do that to us. People leave an impact on us. Even when we're away from them, it takes time for that to wear off and wear down so that we can really be ourselves. Fourth is scripture. Scripture is where fixed hour prayer moves from sort of a vague, healthy mindfulness practice into a uniquely Christian practice. We are not just looking for inner balance, nor are we trying to practice Eastern meditation, or are we trying to practice uh, something that will break the karmic cycle in our lives. Fixed hour prayer is a scheduled interruption in our daily lives so that we may return to God's side, and we may remember who he is and what he is doing in and around us. There is no greater tool available to you and I in our pursuit of knowing and being with God than the Bible. Fixed hour prayer is the perfect vehicle for daily Bible reading. Whether it's a book of the Bible that you're working through, maybe you're trying to read the Bible in a year for the first time or get through the book of Psalms in a month, fixed hour prayer is a great vehicle for you to park that scripture immersion in so that you've already stopped yourself, you've already centered, you've sat quietly, now you're ready to come to God's word and actually get something out of it. If you will plan to pray one or two or 10 times a day, allowing your alarm to go off and interrupt whatever it is that you're up to, stopping yourself, centering yourself, quieting in silence, and then turning your whole self to God in the scriptures, prayer will take on a life of its own. It will become unlike anything you've probably ever seen practiced in a church. It'll lose its need for flowery language. You'll stop being concerned whether you did it right or wrong. It'll lose this sense of formulaic pattern where you start with praying about certain things and then you pray about your family and then you pray for the government. I'm not saying don't pray for those things. I'm telling you, you can have an active and engaged two-way conversation with God. That's not make-believe and it's not just for pastors. It's for you as a Christian. This is something that is open to you. Jesus said when he began his gospel ministry, the kingdom of God is nearby. It's closer than ever. It is easier for people like you and I to communicate with God than it ever has been in human history, and yet we are so busy and hurried, distracted, and anxious that we don't. We just don't do it, and we can. The way is open to us. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. This is a practice. It's going to feel like work. I don't want to romanticize the process, okay? You probably won't like doing this right away. Uh, It'll be tough. You'll question, is it worth the time? It'll be irritating. You'll probably have to face some things about yourself that you don't like. You'll think, uh, I'm not that busy, and then you'll find out how busy you are when you can't pray for 10 minutes two times a day. Or you'll think, I'm not an anxious person, and then sitting in quiet for two and a half minutes as part of your fixed hour prayer will make you rip the hair out of the top of your head. And you'll start to kind of go, maybe I'm not as amazing as I thought. And then you'll talk to your spouse about that, and they'll go, yeah, out here, uh, we all knew that. And so I don't want to be mean, but, you know, you brought it up. Am I going to get in trouble? I don't know. So you just, you know, you'll figure out what other people have already known about you. More importantly, you'll begin to learn what God knows about you. And your prayer life will reflect a more intimate and honest conversation because you'll be telling God the truth. And you may not know this, but I bet a lot of your prayer life you don't. At least you don't go out of your way. 
You go out of your way to ask for things. You go out of your way probably to tell God who he is, and that's good and right. But if we don't know ourselves, we can't bring our whole self before God. And so this is a helpful way to stop, to center, to silence ourselves, to go to God's word, and to engage with him. And so I would invite you to do that. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be frustrating at first. It'll be distracting. It'll be very hard to explain if you do it at work around other people. But eventually, as you meet with God every day and as you grow in practice to the point with him that maybe you're meeting with him a few times a day, you'll start looking forward to those minutes alone and quiet with God. So fixed hour prayer is the best long-form prayer practice that I know. It's easy to start. It's easy to integrate. You can do it with other people. It's a really fun way to engage with your small group or a Bible study or your spouse or some good friends. Pick a time. You'll all know that you're praying for each other. If it feels good, you can text each other. I'm praying for you guys right now. You can text people after. I prayed for you. This, this, and this. God brought this to mind or this came up in my life. It can be very corporate even though you're apart from each other, but the purpose is to get you alone with God. Now, much more briefly than that explanation, I want to quickly walk you through a short-form prayer practice. Um, I think that this has a very good chance of changing the way that you view prayer, especially if you've been around church or you've been around church people for a very long time. So the best short-form prayer practice that I know is called the Jesus Prayer, and it's going to be on this screen for you. It's very short. The Jesus Prayer comes to us from the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition. Uh, If you ever travel in parts of the world like Turkey and kind of places like that, you'll see versions of this prayer printed very simply in mosaic tiles or painted on walls, in frescoes, things like that. This has been a foundational and core prayer for the church for a very, very long time. Uh, And you can change the wording if you want to, but I recommend as a starting point, as something to memorize, these words in this order. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In those four lines, those few simple words, is contained the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We first acknowledge who Jesus is, that he's Lord. Then we affirm that he is both divine, because he comes to us from the Father, but that he's also here to do the work of God, the reconciliation work of of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. We then cry out to Jesus for what is the most simple, but also usually the most difficult thing for us to ask him for, which is mercy. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it feel better, maybe I could say? Wouldn't it be nicer and more polite if I knew my own problems enough that I could list them to God like a doctor's office visit? I could save him a little bit of time by saying I've got some knee pain, this hip's had a joint, and I'm coughing. Instead, we we go before God and we say, I just need mercy. Like I need forgiveness to even stand here. I need the simplest but also most widely sweeping thing that you can give me. I need you to just allow me to be with you, please. Show mercy on me. I know that I don't deserve it. I haven't lived in a way that's earned anything from you. I'm never going to. Would you just let me be here with you? And God will say yes to that request. That's the work that Jesus did. That's what reconciliation means, is a restoration of unity and communion between us and God the Father. And then finally, this prayer requires us to admit who we are. We are sinners who think and feel and speak and do evil. And we do evil to one another and we do evil to God. We are sinners. The Jesus Prayer is a helpful tool uh, of repetition if you find yourself in crisis. Uh, It can be wonderful for times when you're performing a mundane or boring task, like doing the laundry or doing the dishes. You'll find, by reciting these words, even silently in your own head, that they will gain greater and greater meaning and significance to you. It's a really beautiful process. Uh, Just this last week on Wednesday night, I was on a six-hour flight over the ocean, Uh, which is two of my least favorite things to do at once. Uh, And so we hit some turbulence for about 30 minutes. The plane was dancing through the air in a way that airplanes aren't really supposed to move. Uh, And I went to the Jesus Prayer. 
Uh, first, I prayed for everybody around me on the flight, and that only took a few seconds, and the turbulence didn't stop at the end of that. And so I just closed my eyes, grabbed the uh, seat um, armrest on either side of me, and I just began to say quietly in my head, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's what that did for me. It didn't magically protect the airplane, okay? What it did is it prepared me to receive whatever would come next from God's hand. Now, I'm here before you, so God didn't put us down in the ocean, okay? We're fine. Everybody's alive. We didn't crash. That's good. But had something worse happened, I was as best prepared as I possibly could have been by acknowledging in the moment of crisis, God is on his throne and I am not. And I don't even know what I need from him. I don't know if we need a new pilot or better wind or a different airplane. I can't provide any of those things. I need mercy. I need God to care enough about who I am and what's going on in my life that he intervenes in whatever way he deems appropriate to preserve his plan and the people he loves. That's the Jesus prayer. Simple and ready, always at hand. The Jesus prayer is a great way to begin and end a session of prayer. If you don't know how to start up your prayer life in the morning, maybe like me, you wake up and it feels like the gears of your heart have rusted, stopped overnight. I don't know if I'm ever meanest than I, or meaner than I am when I first wake up or when I'm in the middle of sleep at nighttime. Um, and so it gives me a second to just say a thing that I don't even know if I necessarily believe in that moment right away, and I just work on it. And it just warms the system back up as I'm in the shower and I'm getting dressed and I'm getting ready for the day. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It doesn't matter what burden is laying on your heart. When you come to God and ask for mercy, you feel a sense of this is the right prayer. Even if I don't know what to pray, I can ask God that he would be merciful to me. It's easy to memorize, and I recommend that you keep it close at hand as you follow Jesus. The prayer is not just made up, okay? It, doesn't just, it wasn't just a great idea that Saint so-and-so had 1,500 years ago. This comes to us directly from the scriptures. So the last place we'll go in our Bibles today will be Luke chapter 18. And you can go there if you want to. Uh, this whole passage would be worth kind of reading and rereading for you this week. There's a lot of depth and meaning to the way that Jesus instructs his apprentices in prayer in the passage that we're about to read. Uh, I want to draw out one specific point, but it's a very engaging, one of my favorite passages in the Bible about prayer. Jesus is speaking, his apprentices are there, and a group of people have gathered around him who Jesus knows, because he knows everything about everybody, that they're self-righteous. They're full of themselves. They've built a system where if they score enough points doing church life, they believe they'll go to heaven and everybody else has to just deal with the parts of them that are negative. It's what we call self-righteousness. Luke records the story this way, beginning in verse nine of chapter 18. He says, now Jesus also told this parable, which is just a story, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who viewed others with contempt, which is always the fruit of self-righteousness. Jesus said in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, so if we're standing there listening to this story, we are thinking to ourselves, oh, a man who keeps the law perfectly. He's a big deal in our society. So one is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. When we hear tax collector, we go, oh, a rebel against the Jewish way, uh, a man who's a turncoat to align himself with the Roman government and oppress his Jewish brothers and sisters by collecting the taxes of Caesar. So we don't like the tax collector, and we do like the Pharisee before we've even heard anything else in the story, just so you know the mindset of the people that are listening to this. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and he began praying this in regard to himself. So he's praying out loud where everybody can hear him. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like swindlers, crooked people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. A situation that would be mortifying for you and I. Can you imagine if you're standing in here this morning and you hear a person three chairs over praying, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy in the jeans and the sweatshirt right there. God, just, just if I could be better than him, we're good for life. Whatever he's got going on, just keep me safe from his junk. That's all I want. That's what's happening. This is embarrassing. It's inappropriate. It's mortifying. And it's unchristlike. Okay? He says, the Pharisee again is praying. He reminds God as if God doesn't know. God, does God need him to say this? I don't think so. He says, God, I fast twice a week. 
I pay tithes of everything that I get. Now Jesus turns our attention to the tax collector, who's also there to pray. What is he going to say? Jesus says, the tax collector who was standing some distance away, I would be too if the Pharisee was calling out my junk in church, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven. This is significant. This man believes that there's some business to be done in God's presence, but he does not count himself as automatically a part of the group. He does not assume that God's going to hear his prayer. He doesn't even necessarily know if he should be standing there. Is he standing in the right place? Is he praying the way everybody else is supposed to pray? The only example he has in the temple that day is this stuck-up Pharisee guy. So he doesn't want to be like him. So he won't even look up to heaven. He's looking at the ground, and he's beating his chest. Now, he's not doing that to draw attention to himself. Jesus is using this, this movement, this physical body language to demonstrate to you and I, this guy's in pain. There's a sense of adamance about what he's there to do. Probably the last time you had meaningful conflict, you spoke with your body. You clapped, you snapped, you pointed, you stood, you hit something. When we feel a lot, we do something with our bodies. So Jesus is telling us this guy is carrying a burden. This is significant. It's heavy. Here's what the man says, the tax collector. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's your origin for the Jesus prayer. Now, you and I pray to Jesus because Jesus has lived and he's died and he's been resurrected. So he's the one who opens heaven to us, who opens access to God the Father. This man, in Jesus' day and age before Jesus had died, doesn't have a Christ to look to yet. So he's just appealing to God by way of the Old Testament sacrifice system. That may not matter to you, but I want you to understand why the things are a little bit different in this story from the way that we engage. The prayer is the same prayer. You have a man standing in a place where he thinks God might be, crying out to a God that he's not sure is listening, hitting himself in the chest because he's so burdened with the weight that his life has caused him to carry and all he knows to pray is that, God, you have mercy and I need mercy. So would you give that mercy to me, please? Here's the shocker. Jesus turns to these self-righteous people and offends them deeply by saying, I tell you, that man, the tax collector, went home justified, but not the other one. The Pharisee got nothing from God that he needed. He got attention, he got a claim, he got clapped for, people went, oh my gosh, he fasts twice a week? Did you guys even know that? Like he got everything, his whole reward is done. It's tied up and he gets to enjoy it on earth. The man who came to God, not even sure if God would hear him and not sure how to speak to him, when he cried out, his soul was changed. His spirit was transformed. Jesus goes on to say, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What does God require from people who want to be justified, who want to be right with God. Not spiritual disciplines, not a chance. The disciplines are what we call spiritual practices. They are not winsome to God. They're not convincing to God. They don't entangle God in some way where he has no choice but to let us into heaven when we die. When we die, God does not need the disciplines and they are not his idea. We need the disciplines. We need them in our lives because we don't know how to get to God and we don't care enough to make him a priority most of the time. The disciplines serve our ability to connect with God, but that connection doesn't depend on the disciplines, it depends on humility. It depends on our attitude and the posture of our inner life when it comes to God and what we think he'll do and who we think he is and who he says he is in his word. If the disciplines ever become more than that, if they become an end unto themselves or if they become the way that we score points among other church people or, or even how we justify condemning people because of their sin, then we have become the Pharisee in the temple if we're more excited to let the people at church know that we've, we fasted, or in this case, we practiced fixed hour prayer two times a day all week long, then it's worthless. 
But if we find in scheduling and in praying in a meaningful way that we have access to God and that we bring ourselves back to his side when we've drifted away, the practice has done its work. That's what we want. We want to be people who know God, not people who know enough about God to impress other people. That's bull. There's nothing good for you and I in that at all. It's a way of wickedness. It's another way away from God. When we see ourselves rightly, in light of the love and acceptance and redemption that Jesus offers to us, then we will be like the tax collector in the story. We may feel like standing far off from the church. We may not feel ready to look up and make eye contact with God the Father. We may even be in deep emotional and spiritual pain because of the lives that we've lived so far. Probably so. But when we cry out to God from that humility, simply asking him for mercy, we get to go home justified. Jesus uses the word exalted as a synonym for justified to describe the feeling of elation that comes when we meet Jesus. There is joy for us in Jesus because in him and in him alone we find the rest that our souls long for. He is where our prayers begin and end. He is our only hope in life and death. So finally this morning, I'll share a quote with you from a book called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. I appreciate a lot of what Dallas wrote in his lifetime. Uh, You know that. I've quoted him many times and I probably will again but Renovation of the Heart has been the most helpful and transformative work of his that I've ever read. Dallas wrote this. He wrote, Those who are not genuinely convinced that the only real bargain in life is surrendering ourselves to Jesus and to his cause, abandoning all that we love to him and for him, they cannot learn the other lessons that Jesus has to teach us. They cannot proceed to anything like total spiritual transformation. Not that Jesus will not let us, but that we simply cannot succeed. If I tell you that you cannot drive an automobile unless you can see, I'm not saying that I will not let you. I'm saying that you cannot succeed even if I do. My friends, if you want to be a spiritual person, if you want to find meaning and life in your inner being, you have to start with Jesus. Neither he nor I are telling you that you're not allowed to try to pray or to try to meditate, nor that you cannot sit in silence away from other people. But if you want those things to have meaning, if you hope to find what you're longing for, you have to start with him. No one here at this church or in your life is going to try to prevent you from participating in a life group or from singing or from praying or from serving those around you if you don't start with Jesus. But you will not succeed in any spiritual effort that you make without coming to Jesus first. Like Dallas said, the only real bargain in life is surrendering yourself to Jesus and his cause. And that's the most important thing I can say to you about prayer. Now, each week in our prayer series, we're ending our time together by reading and praying what's called the Liturgy for the Labors of Community. This comes to us from a book called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. You're welcome to pray along with me today. I'm gonna read through this again and pray it. We'll have the words on the screen. I know last week, Tracy made you guys say it out loud. Uh, I'm going to give you a week off. I'm going to just read it for the sake of time, just me. And then next week, we'll probably do it in more of a call and response format. So close your eyes if you want. Look at the screen if you want. Pray a different prayer if you want. But I'm going to read this prayer over us and pray it to God on our behalf. The prayer says this. Our lives are so small, O Lord. Our visions so limited. Our courage so frail. Our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. We are gathered here because we believe that we are called together into a work we cannot yet know the fullness of, and still we trust the voice of the one who has called us. And so we offer to you, O God, these things, our dreams, our plans, our vision. Shape them as you will. 
Our moments and our gifts, may they be invested toward bright, eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored of our own accomplishment or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice, our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us, in true humility and poverty of spirit, remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love in paths of your design. You alone, O God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit, have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts one to another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, O Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious workings of your spirit who weaves all things together toward a redemption more good and glorious than we yet have eyes to see or courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O Lord. Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained for this community, flower in winsome and beautiful foretaste of greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Father, we pray this prayer to you as people who hope to be transformed. We trust you to do the work that only you can do in us, and we, to the best of our ability, God, will meet you there. We'll stop trying to force our way into spirituality or Christianity or a life of love, and we'll follow you as you lead us, Father. We love you, God. We love this community. We pray that you'd continue to open our eyes to understand the needs of the people around us and to lead us in ways that meet those needs appropriately. We pray, God, that we would be loving one to another, that as we participate in life group, as we participate in parenting, in work, in the general life of the church, God, that you would make us people who are gracious and who are quick to forgive. We love you, Father. We trust you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.